Welcome to Product Voices, a podcast where we share valuable insights and useful resources to help us all be great in product management. Visit the show's website to access the resources discussed on the show, find more information on our fabulous guests, or to submit your product management question to be answered on our special Q&A episodes. That's all at productvoices.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Now, here's our host, J.J. Rory, CEO of Great Product Management. Hello, welcome to Product Voices. I'm excited about our conversation today. I've got John Fontenot with me. John is the author of Never Assume, 10 Fatal Assumptions Great Product Managers Never Make. This is a new book. I've read it. It's very, very good. Um, You need to go get it. And John is here to talk about the book and his insights that he wrote in this book. So I'm really, really excited. John Fontenot, thank you for joining me. Hey, JJ. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation. This is actually going to be a two-part episode. So this is the first part. We'll talk about the first five assumptions in the book, um, and then you can come back next week for part two. So let's jump in. What got you thinking about this in the first place, and ultimately what what drove you to to write the book? Yeah, it's a great question. So I don't know. I, I feel like my my PM superpower is is like connecting dots, right? And so as as I thought back around my very early experiences and and, and things that I still experience today, um, one thing I noticed was that a, a common pattern of product failures or failed features was just untested or unchallenged assumptions, right? It, it, anywhere from things that I, I thought should be a priority or things that I thought I was aligned on <laughs> across the organization. And, um, and on my own podcast, I, I interviewed a bunch of startup founders and, and found that it was common among startup failures, too, that one of the top two most common <laughs> reasons for startup failures was there was some level of, of like falsehood to a very key assumption to their business that caused it to stumble and fail. And I, I just I, I noticed that there wasn't much content out there on, um, on assumptions as it relates to the way that I wanted to frame it in the book. And so I decided to produce it. I love it. It's it's really good. And I, I agree. I think that it, it's almost like we all know that we work off of assumptions. We work off hypotheses. And, you know, there's like a fleeting uh, content or conversation that, hey, we should do this better. <laughs> and then we just kind of put our heads down and keep going. So I, I'm really uh, pleased that you thought it was worthy of a of a really good uh, piece of content because it is. We need to talk about this more often. So so let's let's jump in. I want to talk about each of the assumptions um, in in detail and have you briefly describe each one and talk about why it's important. And so again, we're going to talk about the first five today on this episode, and then come back for part two, and we'll talk about the the other uh, the other five assumptions that great product managers don't make. So let's jump in. First one: never assume you're correct. Oh, tell me about that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's something that as as I read a lot of product content online and I, I hear from a lot of early stage or aspiring product managers, and I think there's this common misconception uh, for, for those trying to get into product that we need to be like the Steve Jobs and come up with this innovative thing that consumers don't know they want or businesses don't know they want, but, but we're there to go tell them what they should have or, or what's going to make their lives 10x better. And that's, it's just a fundamentally flawed assumption getting into the 
the career of product management that we have to be the idea person that comes up with the 10x innovation. And that's just not how product works in practice. And so um, figured I would call out some some prior experiences of my own, as, as well as sharing a, a story of other very experienced PMs and kind of how they stumbled across those same assumptions and kind of tripped up early in their careers too, to, to shed light on on that for these early stage PMs who think that they have to be kind of that that idea person who comes up with all, all the great new stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think so many product managers or aspiring product managers think that it's all an idea job and that you're going to be up on stage. Um, you, you know, you're going to be the next Elon Musk, if you will. I, I don't know if anybody wants to be him right now, but <laughs> um, maybe they do. I certainly want his money. That's for sure. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm teaching a class now at, at a university and the, the students who are primarily engineering students, early 20s, age, you know, a little bit of work experience, but mostly just academia. And they all, I, I say that uh, most of them want to be product managers, or at least they think they do, right? But they don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> and I'm teaching them about product management, but they're still new and they don't really get it, but they know how cool the job is. They know that it's hot. They read about it all the time. And so many of them have that erroneous opinion that it's going to mean they're going to come up with these brilliant ideas. They're going to end up being this this founder, this you know billionaire someday. And sure, there's you know one in a million that that happens to. But the truth is, most of us work on incremental innovation. We take ideas from lots of different parties and and bring those together ultimately for the betterment of the customer and the business. So I love that you talk about that. And that you, you know, kind of are helping people understand that it's not, it's not only one way in product management. There's a lot of people that come together and a lot of places that ideas come from. Totally. The, the way I like to talk about it is, is we're almost like a sponge, right? It, it's very mm -hmm. analogous to that where we have to take in and absorb inputs from all across the business, right? Internally, externally, look at the market, look at the customers we serve today. And a big part of our job is, is synthesizing those inputs and then working collaboratively across our product team with marketing, with sales, right? And, and really figure out like, what's gonna make us successful going to market? What, where are the gaps in the market? What, where are our current customers underserved today? How can we strengthen our defensibility? And th those aren't things that we can come to on our own, right? It, it's, it's almost like raising children takes a village while raising a product takes one too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it does. That's a great point. Okay. So the second one I love, and, and I think we, so many of us fall into to this trap. So the second one is never assume customers are correct. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So in, I think retail has made this quote famous, right? That the customer's always right, or the customer's always correct. Mm -hmm. And in product, <laughs> Um, that's just not the case in, in a lot of the ways that we choose to to handle customer requests, right? It, it's, it's very common for customers to come to us and say, hey, I want you to build this feature. And it's all too easy to turn around and say, okay, I'll go build that feature. And I know you talked to Jason Knight recently. Uh, I listened to that podcast episode around the differences of B2B and B2C and how in some instances you have very large clients and maybe 10, 12 clients that represent the entirety of your revenue, right? And it's harder to tell them no for a specific feature than uh, because they represent such a large part of your business. But even in those scenarios, right, across 
product disciplines, or that's what you want to call them, or across industries, or whether you're B2C, B2B enterprise, it's more foundational or it's more fundamental to understand the problem driving the request. Because still at the end of the day, like we have to build for a market, right? If, if we spend all of our time building for one client, even if they represent 10% of your overall revenue, um, one, the likelihood of you not getting things correct, right? Or actually truly solving their problem there's probably context that you're missing if you just go build the thing they asked you for. And so taking a step back to really um, like go past the surface of saying, okay, the, the feature that they're asking for might not be the right one, but what I should care about is the problem driving the request so I can truly solve it. Because at the end of the day, whether it's a you know, billion dollar enterprise that you're serving or you know, a million consumers, right? They don't care what the feature is. They care that you solve their problem. And, and that's really the big takeaway I wanted to come from that chapter is that, you know, it, it's not our job to be the order taker, right? Like I, I was, I was a waiter early in my, like right after college, during college, I waited tables and, you know, I took orders, but that's not what we do as product managers, right? It, it's, it's a lot more uh, complex. And uh, the whole theory of jobs to be done comes from that is, is you have to understand the problems that your customers or consumers face and the context in which they face them to truly get to the, the root need um, that's, that's driving behavior. Absolutely. I think that's really important. You know, the next one actually ties into that, in my opinion, because I think what some companies do is they try to mirror competitors. Um, they try to better them, but they do what competitors are doing and they try to do it a little bit better. And so we all have done competitive analysis and looked at features and functionality and, and kind of the big picture of, of how competitors compare to us as, you know, our business and our product portfolio. And then we try to do it better. Well, there's an assumption in there that the competitors have done the right customer needs analysis and the competitors are actually building the right solutions in the first place. So let's talk about this next one. Never assume competitors are correct. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. And, and one of my biggest pet peeves as a, a product manager is inevitably, especially if you're in B2B, which, which I have been my whole career, mostly serving SMBs. So not at the enterprise level, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the sales team will go to the CEO and say, hey, we're losing X number of deals because we don't have this feature. Our competitor has it. This person asked for it and we didn't we didn't close the deal. And so they, they take this this corollary analysis, very light corollary analysis and say, well, I didn't close the deal and they asked for this feature. So it must be because we didn't have the feature. So there's there's fundamental assumption number one. But then they go to the CEO with the assumption of if we have that feature, we're going to close these deals that we didn't close when there's so many more variables to worry about. But then the CEO comes to the product team and says, hey, go build that feature so we can we can close those deals. And that, that leads into the next chapter, which I won't jump ahead yet. However, it, it all kind of ties together where we, we look at competitors and assume things way too early. Right. And there's there's a great story um, in, in the book about that. But to, to your point, right, like it, it, it assumes that the competitor <laughs> didn't do the thing that we just experienced, right? Who, who's to say that their executives didn't have pet projects that they forced the product manager to do? And that feature absolutely has nothing to do with adding value to the customer, right? And so now all we're doing is creating more feature bloat in our products that really doesn't add value to our users whatsoever. And, um, and, and I think the biggest, the biggest thing that, that I wanted 
to you know the reader to take away from that is you know even if you assume correctly that the competitor is talking to customers validating their their problems making sure they framed it correctly and they're validating the solutions to those problems if all you're doing is copying your competitor because you're looking at them to be correct then you're never putting yourself in a position to differentiate your own product and figure out how you can serve your customers better and inherently your solution is going to be subpar to your competitors because you don't have the same intimate insight that they did from the actual validation that they did from discovery to delivery exactly exactly and you know what's what's interesting and, and again this ties to the next one which we'll we'll talk about in just a moment um i want to i want to ask your your opinion and, and your expertise and and some of the stuff you've put in the book, how do product managers approach that? How do we, when we've got a sales team, when we've got executives who are coming to us and we know that we're all making assumptions or that, or that they're making assumptions that we, we should not be doing, how do, how do you approach that? What are some tips that you would give product managers to approach those sales teams, those executives who are coming that you know that that causality is not there and how do you kind of rein them back in? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not going to say that this advice works in every case because there are um, executives who are very opinionated. Um, some might say borderline arrogant or um, very top down in, in, in their their nature. But but I'd I'd say that there's there's a lot more executives these days that are um, more humble in nature or at least claim to be data driven. Mm -hmm. and, and what I like to do, whether it's an executive or you know a mid level manager, whoever it is that's coming to me, a sales rep, and, and ask for the same thing that I would be asking for if, if I was thinking of prioritizing something based on the research I did, right, is data. Like what, what outside of the anecdotal request you got from X customer over there, <laughs> what's actually driving the business value behind this request and help me make that case because I think a lot of times product managers feel like it's all on us, right? Somebody comes to us with something and we just have to say no, because it's not a priority. But I think if we can start shifting the narrative to where we can start asking our stakeholders, our cross-functional partners for the same amount of data that we would be inherently going look for to validate whether or not this is a real opportunity, then it starts to train them to start thinking like product people, right? They, they, they start knowing and understanding that if they come to us with a request, they need to come with this type of data. And so they start looking for it. And so my, my hope in this, and this is something that I'm still trying to prove out in my own practice, is that we, we get less requests because people are helping us filter those requests through the same, through the lens of the same data that we're asking for anyway. And, and so that, that's my advice is take the pressure off of yourself, put the ball back in their court, this isn't something that, that you've seen data on or that you validated yourself. So if it's something that they think is, is really worth it, then, then make them go do the work to help prove the point. And it's, it's only going to make your life easier and it's going to make the business run more effectively um, if everyone's thinking like, like product people and putting that, that same level of, of rigor around their thinking. I love that. And, and I agree. I think that would be so, uh, so beneficial to the organization, to, to everyone, obviously the product manager, because as you said, they those ideas are getting filtered out ahead of you, but it allows those salespeople, those other partners to understand the, 
the process, the decision-making process and why, why we go through what we go through and, and why we say no sometimes, and that will be beneficial to, to everyone. And so, um, you know, again, this, this fourth one, which we've, we've alluded to here is never assume executives are correct, right? So again, it's, it's sometimes they have a pet project. Sometimes they come to us based on just an, an anecdotal, um, you know, piece of data. I love what you said, though, because the truth is, if if we, if anyone goes to an executive with a recommendation or a request, most of them are going to say, where's the data? Where's the proof? Right. Show me the impact, um, even though they don't necessarily do that when they bring us their project. So tell me a little bit more about this, about this chapter and about this assumption. Never assume executives are correct. Yeah, um, I, I felt this um throughout different parts of my career, but even before product. But I think there's this inherent feeling that if, if somebody has a job title that's greater than ours, that we are somehow beholden to do what they ask us to do, right? Whether it's yeah. whether you're an individual contributor at the product level and your director or VP of product comes to you, a VP of sales comes to you, or your CEO comes to you and says that, hey, I want you to do this thing, right? we don't inherently have to go do it. <laughs> um, at least my, my advice would be that even if they may not like it at first, I, I firmly believe that they will respect you a lot more if you show them that you think at their level. Because to your point earlier, JJ, right? Like th they're going to ask, if you if you try to get investment for some big project, they're going to ask those same questions, right? And, and even though like that whole debate about being the CEO of the product still rages on on social media, like we still have to think that way, right? Like mm -hmm. if we if we take the level of ownership that we treat this product as if it's as if it's ours and if it was our money that we were tossing around, like how would we invest that money? I, I believe we should be thinking that way. Then I believe that our executives and senior leaders will respect us if we push back a little bit when when they don't provide us with data, right? Because you know, they may be reacting off of emotion or off of some heated meeting they had with a VP of sales and it may not think to ask for that same stuff they would ask us for. So, so the, the, the advice I give in the book is a little nuanced because it's not so straightforward and easy all the time. Um, and and I, I can go over it lightly, but basically like at a, at a high level, ask for data, ask for them to, to help you make that decision and then if they're still pushing back then the next thing i would say is at, at least come to a common understanding of what success looks like because if mm -hmm. if they know that you are now changing priority to do the thing that they told you to do because at the end of the day it's it's their company or they could fire you or <laughs> depending on who it is right you may have to submit at some level or, or quit um, but if you go ahead and go through with it then if, if you have a common definition of what success looks like and it's unsuccessful, then you could bring that back to have a productive conversation to say, hey, look, the thing that we were going to prioritize was supposed to yield X you know, result. This thing missed the mark here. Next time, it would, it would probably be a lot better for the business as a whole if we, if we actually went through the exercise and the rigor uh, of doing a proper analysis on this before we just kind of pulled the trigger on a decision. And, you know, if, if they're not, if they've gotten to that level and can't have that level of candor in a conversation, then, then it might not be the, the right culture <laughs> to do product within. Um, so that's, that's kind of my two cents on that piece. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's very fair and great advice. I love, you know, sometimes no matter how much 
data we provide or ask for or how much proof you know we 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 try to get and or pr- provide on our side to to avoid um, a pet project um, sometimes as you say we just have to go forward with it and i love the advice about establishing success criteria from the beginning because at least we're setting the groundwork for further conversation at the end and if it succeeds great I mean, hey, that that's better for all of us. It's not that we're trying to prove ourselves right, um, but, you know, it, sometimes and most often we do. <laughs> and um, as opposed to just saying, I told you so, uh, actually having some, some empirical data there is really great. So that's awesome. Um, really good advice. So the final one um, for today's episode is never assume customer priorities. That's a really good one, too. Tell us more about that. Yeah, th- this is interesting, right? Because you know, in in perfect product practice, if there ever was such a thing, um, we we do discovery, we uncover op- the opportunity space. We we may have read Teresa Torres's book and and mapped out our opportunity tree or opportunity solution tree, and you know, I th- I think sometimes we can get a little hasty with saying, okay, here's the opportunity space. Let's just go build the thing that we think will have the most impact, right? We'll we'll break out our fancy rice framework and say okay well i think that you know this feature or this solution would have this much reach and i think based on the conversations it'll have this impact and i'm 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 pretty confident so let's let's mark that as whatever number we put on here and let's go talk to the devs about what the effort would be right but there's there's a level of of testing that we can do around desirability um and, and there's there's different um tests that you could run to to really gauge what actually would make the most impact or what is the most desirable thing. And that's probably not something we have fully time to unpack here. But the the point is, is like we could make those assumptions around what the priorities uh, of those opportunities are. And then we might be suboptimally building value for our business. So going and doing that extra level of validation back with with our users, whether it's qualitatively, quantitatively running surveys or or however we're trying to not only de-risk, but also validate the the value of what we're trying to build is just going to make you that much more effective and impactful as as a product manager. And and we know that that's that's big for our career, right? Because if the bigger the impact we can show, the the more opportunities we're going to get to to get where we want to go in our career. Such great advice. So John Fontenot, author of Never Assume 10 Fatal Assumptions Great Product Managers Never Make. Thank you for joining me for the first part of talking about your book and all of these assumptions that we need to avoid. Um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, We're going to be back next week for part two to talk about the remaining assumptions not to make. And those include never assume you're aligned, never assume you're doing a good job and more. So, um, John, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, JJ. It was a pleasure. And everyone, make sure you come back next week for part two so you can hear the other assumptions that John has written about in his book. You can find out more about uh, how to get the book how to connect with John on productvoices.com. And we'll see you next week in part two of the John Fontenot Never Assume episode. Thank you for listening to Product Voices, hosted by J.J. Rory. To find more information on our guests, resources discussed during the episode, or to submit a question for our Q&A episodes, visit the show's website, productvoices.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. 